Would you open your Bibles or turn in your bulletin to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 32? Uh, we are continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount, and this morning we come to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. Hear the word of the Lord. You have heard it's, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you um, thankful that you've given us your word. Uh, we need you to meet with us, to speak to us this morning. Uh, we pray that we would see you, the beauty of your love and your faithfulness to us, more clearly this morning. May your gospel go out from this place into our hearts and into our lives as we leave here. Uh, we thank you for uh, this place, for this opportunity to gather together. We pray that this time would be beneficial and encouraging to us. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tomorrow's Valentine's Day, so we thought how appropriate um, we would do this sermon. That's a joke. That's not what happened. Um, we didn't plan on it being Valentine's Day. We're just here in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I was joking with someone earlier. I thought, you know, maybe we'd just throw in some, like, we're going to talk about tithing today and predestination and some other fun hot-button issues and just round out the sermon and throw all the fun stuff in. Um, this morning, Jesus' words for us are difficult. We can be honest. Um, it's really unpleasant to just sit here and read these words to you this morning um, because we hear these words from Jesus, and we can either say, this is impossible, Jesus. I can't do this. Why do I even need to try? Or we have our own hurts and wounds and scars from lust and adultery and divorce, and it can really feel like Jesus is just kicking us when we're down. Um, but we need to remember that the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching us what it really means to be human, what it really means to live like his people, what living into the kingdom of God, bringing the not yet of our certain future of what life will be like in heaven when he returns into the already and the present of our lives. He's showing us what the beautiful life, what a life shaped and guided by his word and his heart and his kingdom look like. Um, many of you have been reading Gentle and Lowly um, over the past few weeks, and there's more copies back there for you to take, give to your friends. Um, so I really wanted to start this morning uh, with Jesus' posture towards you to frame this difficult conversation that we're going to have this morning. Um, this past week, Brad and I, we went to New Orleans for a pa pastor's conference, and we had a great time there. And one of the highlights of the week was hearing Abby Hutto speak. She's the director of spiritual formation at Story Presbyterian Church in Westerville, Ohio, um, and she was just incredible. Um, but she shared this illustration with us, this story from her life, and I asked her if I could share it with you this morning uh, to help frame this discussion, to encourage you um, as we talk about these heavy things, about God's heart and his posture towards you. So Abby um, said one day she got a phone call 
uh, in the middle of the day from her son's principal. Her son Harry was 10 at the time, and she was good friends with this principal. And so she answered the phone, hey, what's going on? And her principal said, this isn't that kind of phone call. Um, she explained that Harry um, was not good that day. Harry, uh, you know, for, for the principal to have to call Abby, um, the teachers, the principal were patient people, but this was no small thing. Harry had been really bad that day. And so the principal said, I've sent Harry home uh, with this packet um, outlining and describing the events of the day. Um, I've given it to him to give to you, to have you sign it in front of him, and to send it back to school to give to me tomorrow. Um, so Abby hangs up the phone and begins fuming. She's angry. She's embarrassed. She feels like a failure as a parent. And so she wants to just grab Harry when he gets home and yell at him and scream at him for embarrassing her and shaming her at, at, with the school. Um, so Abby calls her husband, who's away on business. He doesn't answer. She tries to call several other friends and family members, and none of them answer either. And so she finally decides, okay, well, maybe I'm just going to pray about this. Um, last resort, right? Um, in her anger and in her desperation, um, Abby uh, remembered the way that Jesus treats hurting people, the way that he treats people who have blown it and messed up deeply. She remembers how Jesus treats her when she's sitting in a mess of her own making. And so Harry gets off the bus, and she's watching him from the window, and he's walking towards the house, and he's got this giant backpack um, filled with this packet of shame in his, in his bag. And he walks and he takes a couple steps and he throws his head back and he screams and wails. And he takes a couple more steps and throws his head back and wails. You know, H Harry doesn't know how he's going to be received when he comes home. So Abby, and I have a hard time with this one, um, Abby opens the door. Harry begins to fumble for his backpack. She stops him and says, Harry, before you show me what's in that backpack, I need you to know something. I need you to know that you're my son, and you're mine, and I love you, and there's nothing in that backpack that's going to change the way I feel about you. We're going to look at that packet of shame together, but I need you to know that I love you, and you're mine, and I'm proud that you're my son. That's where we need to start this morning. That's where we need to begin, you need to know this morning as we talk about these difficult things that Jesus loves you, that he is excited about you, that he cherishes you, and he's committed himself to you, and he's died for you so that you could be his. Hebrews says it was the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. As he hung there on the cross, he envisioned your face. And he thought you were worth it. And he, you were that joy before him. You are wanted by him. You are cherished by him. And you are loved by him even when you're not behaving. He wants you to know how loved you are. Because if you know that your love, that his love for you and his posture towards you, it's not based on you or your goodness, but based solely on Jesus' finished work on the cross for you, you'll come home. You'll come home and you won't stay outside with your packet of shame. You won't stay away. Jesus wants you to know that he loves prodigals. He loves those who've blown it in huge and destructive and disappointing and shameful ways. And he's home to welcome you back, to throw a party for you. 
but we're afraid. How am I going to be received? I've messed up too bad. My packet of shame is too big. It's so terrible. You need to know Jesus knows, and he loves you. You're his. He knows when we're sitting in a mess of our own making that he wants you to know that he has pledged himself to you, that he came to save you, that he promises to never leave you and to let you, never let you be snatched away from his hand. His grace is real, and it's powerful enough to forgive you, to restore you, and to heal you. His table feasting with him is where you belong. No matter the pain that you've caused, no matter the pain that you've endured, if you're his, that is where you belong. We need to hear this. We need to remember this. We need to be shaped by this and let it inform the way that we hear the hard things that Jesus has for us this morning. Jesus is not out to get you. He's not out to destroy your fun. He's not out to kill your joy. He's died to rescue you from the ways that lead to death, and he wants us to know his ways lead to life. They lead to resurrection and to flourishing, to love and to wholeness, even when our hearts feel like he's withholding from us. So last week, Brad showed us um, Jesus' words about anger, and this week he turns to our sexuality. And what's amazing here at the beginning of our um, passage, uh, you know, Jesus doesn't start with, thus says the Lord, uh, like old prophets do. You know, he puts himself next to Yahweh, the, 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 the God that gave Moses the law. And he says, but I say to you, because Jesus is the second member of the Trinity, he's God come in the flesh. And when he speaks, he carries the very presence of the word of God with him. We, you and I, would never dare say, and if you ever hear us say from the pulpit, the Bible says, but I say to you, leave, run away. Like, we've missed it. Um, we would never do that. But because Jesus says, but I say to you, we have to hear this, and we have to deal with it and do business with this call, no matter how strange, no matter how disruptive, no matter how difficult this is, because it's coming from the God who loves you. So when Jesus says in verse 28, um, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart, Jesus isn't saying that sex or desire in and of itself is bad. God created sex, and it's good. Jesus isn't saying that desire in general or desire for your spouse is bad. Desire is a God-given drive that's to be used within the confines of marriage between a husband and a wife. There's a whole book in the Bible, Song of Songs, that celebrates the marital love between a husband and wife. Jesus isn't even saying that recognizing or appreciating or, or um, admitting the physical attractiveness or the beauty of another is wrong. Um, many have been trained to think that even if they admit that someone's beautiful or they recognize that someone's beautiful, they just immediately put their head down in shame and pile on guilt and shame because they think they're lusting. That's not what Jesus is after here. He made us with bodies to celebrate, to touch, and to enjoy with imaginations to use. Jesus here isn't sabotaging sex or desire. One writer puts it this way, what Jesus sabotages here is not desire, but rightful desire spent wrongfully. When Jesus says anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, he's not saying looking with lust. He's saying looking in order to lust. 
There's a subtle um, but really important distinction there. Looking in order to lust takes what God has given us in his good creation, the good created desire for the opposite sex, and it uses it outside of God's plan for marriage. Jesus is trying to get at our hearts here. He's against looking, longing, lusting that is out of bounds and out of balance with God's law of love for God and for our neighbor. Using our imaginations that we're created with, it's a good thing. But when we use our imaginations to break God's law and his intent for us to be pure and holy and to reflect his glory and his love, that's where we run into problems. Because lust fails to love. Lust seeks only the good of oneself. It's totally and purely and utterly selfish. It doesn't seek the good of the other at all. It uses, it abuses, it dehumanizes the other. One of my seminary professors used to say that misuse and abuse does not negate proper use. Um, The problem isn't that we're created as sexual beings in God's image, as humans with desire. The problem is, is when we have these over-desires, um, that's, that's what the, the word lust means in this passage, um, when we have these over-desires for things that are not good for us, when we pursue them head first and they become full-blown, they overwhelm us and they devour us and they lead to death. They lead to, to hell and separation from God, as verse 30 tells us. The other thing that we need to know is that, that it's not sinful to be tempted, that temptation is not the same thing as sin. Jesus was tempted in every way, and yet he refused to sin. You and I, we can't prevent certain thoughts from entering our minds. The question is, once they enter, what do we do with them? Do we cast them aside, seeking to, to trust and to honor and love Jesus and our neighbor whom he created, Or do we dwell on them? Do we harbor them? Do we rehearse them? Do we let them set up shop in our brains and make a home in our minds? Martin Luther once said this, that we cannot stop birds from flying over our heads, but we can keep them from building nests in our hair or biting our noses off. It's the same thing with lust here. And then Jesus also prevents a, a, you know, blame her looks or but she enticed me approach here that many often take. The problem is with our hearts. It has nothing to do with outside of us. It's everything to do with inside of us. Jesus here is revealing to us the depths of our sin, and he wants us to see the seriousness of it. So when he talks about, you know, removing, gouging out your eye and chopping off your hand, Jesus isn't advocating for self-mutilation. No one believes that. Jesus is using hyperbole. Jesus is using exaggeration here to communicate how serious this sin is. He's using disgusting, vivid imagery to show us how disgusting this sin is in his eyes. And Jesus isn't thinking of these like momentary singular trip-ups here with the use of stumbling in verse 30, um, though that's not an excuse for us to even have momentary acts of indiscretion. Jesus here is using stumbling like he does throughout the rest of the book of Matthew in chapters 13 and 18 and 24 and 26 and in John chapter 6 and 16 where stumbling refers to rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus is saying you can become so consumed, so devoured by this that it's better 
to have pain and difficulty in this life for following and being faithful to him than abandoning him and faith in him, ignoring Jesus and his love for you and his call to forgiveness and to holiness, that it's better to pursue him, even if it's going to cause you pain, than to pursue something that's going to result in death and hell. You know, Jesus, we've been talking this whole time about in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expects his followers to have a greater righteousness. His kingdom people are called to reflect what life is going to be like in the kingdom of God, to bring the future reality of the certain that we will certainly experience one day when Jesus returns. We're supposed to bring that into the present, into our relationships, into our minds, into our hearts, into our attitudes now. John Calvin says this. He says, Jesus means that however difficult, arduous, troublesome, or painful God's rule may be, we must make no excuse for that as the righteousness of God should be worth more to us than all the other things which are chiefly dear and precious. So if this is something you struggle with this morning, I encourage you, talk to someone. Talk to a close friend. Talk to me and Brad, your pastors. Talk to one of your elders. Talk to a counselor. Go to an SA meeting. Talk to someone. But know this, Jesus' grace is big enough and it's powerful enough that you can be forgiven and you are not resigned to a life of darkness and shame and hiding. There's hope. The answer isn't just stop it, although we often want it to be that way, but you and I know that that doesn't help. The answer isn't just stop it. The answer to our struggles with lust, our, the answer to struggle with any sin, really, is the gospel. We need, as Thomas Chalmers says, the expulsive power of a new affection. You know, one of your kids picks up a razor blade. Um, you can shout at them. You can yell at them to put it down, and that may be effective, and it actually may be appropriate in the moment. But what if you grabbed, like, their favorite toy, or you grabbed a piece of candy, and you said, here, take this instead. This thing that you think isn't, isn't going to damage you, it's actually going to hurt you. It's actually going to maim you. It's actually going to kill you if you don't deal with it properly. The thing that you think is harmless, it's going to destroy you. We don't need to just get rid of lust and stop it. We need to replace it with something more beautiful, something more true, something more perfect, something that will not leave you dark and empty and frail and ashamed and afraid, but something that's going to bring you life and resurrection and wholeness and hope and transformation. And that's only found in Jesus. And seeing him as more beautiful, more desirable even than our sin, so this morning, are you enthralled by the grace of Jesus this morning? Do you see the beauty of his love for you? Does it drive you to worship? Do you see his love and his affection for you? Does it drive you to want to follow him and to serve him? You know, is the gospel the best news you've ever heard? Is it great news that brings great joy? Or is it routine news of mild interest? So as we turn to look at Jesus' words concerning divorce and marriage now, I think it's okay for us to admit that, that what Jesus says here is confusing. Um, we need to understand God's intent for marriage. You know, divorce confuses us because marriage confuses us, because if we're honest, love confuses us. So we need to understand God's intent for marriage for us. Marriage is a gift given to us by God at the very beginning of the Scripture with Adam and Eve. 
You know, they're naked and they knew no shame. And their calling was to make God lovers, to fill the earth with them and to rule over the whole world. The Bible grounds marriage and it grounds love in God's covenant faithful love for us. God's covenant love for us. God covenants and he promises to be with us, to be for us, unto full redemption. He promises to be with us, to be for us, until full redemption, until we're in his kingdom and we fully become like Jesus and we're fully the holy and the loving people of God that can only love God and our neighbor perfectly. When two people get married, they make a covenant with each other. They make future promises that are not based on their feelings, that are not based on their circumstances, but solely on the covenant that they make with each other. They promise to be with, to be for each other, no matter what happens until death. So this covenant understanding of love, it means that marriage reflects God's love, which means that divorce destroys that reflection of, God, of, the, of the God who is utterly faithful. Marriage is defined by God's love. One writer says this, our love for our spouse is to be with them, to be for them, and to be unto God's formative purposes for each of us. So if we're going to understand what marriage means, we have to understand what love means. This with, for, unto God's purposes for us. Stanley Howarath says this, if we come to this text and we're looking for reasons to justify divorce, we miss the whole point. What this text does is to redefine marriage, to anchor it in the new community of Jesus, a community that will make possible both the single life and fidelity. Here, Jesus calls his people to a better way, to the way of love and to the way of faithfulness. In verse 31, Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is summarizing Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. And we need to remember that divorce was not a part of God's design for us. And Moses in Deuteronomy 24 only permitted divorce because the Israelites had hard hearts and they didn't want to bear the full burden of God's law. And if you flip over to Matthew 19, you'll see that Jesus, he believes Genesis 1 and 2, it comprehends marriage as an inviolable union created by God, where the man and the woman become one flesh. So for Jesus, marriage, it's about withness. It's about, it, it reflects the Trinity with this mutual indwelling of love that's shared between a husband and a wife and becoming one flesh. But in Jesus' day, what we hear here, when divorce occurred, the husband had to provide a certificate of divorce allowing that woman to be able to remarry. And during this time in, in history, um, there were two camps that were coming out of Moses' teaching. One was conservative, and one was more liberal in their views toward divorce. Um, the conservative group said that you were permitted to get a divorce. You didn't have to, but only under the circumstances of adultery, of sexual unfaithfulness, of covenant breaking. In the liberal group, they said you could get a divorce for any reason. You know, if your wife burned dinner that evening, you could divorce her. If she stopped meeting your desires, you could divorce her. If you found someone else that held your gaze better, you could divorce her. Jesus is confronting these views that our culture holds today um, and is essentially saying that those who divorce flippantly simply because they're tired of their spouse um, are guilty of adultery. 
But marriage, it's designed and created to be this inviolable union created by God. And the only reason allowed for severing that unity here, according to Jesus, is adultery, is breaking that covenant fidelity. Paul later builds on that, and he adds abandonment in there, which includes physical abuse. Um, But the reason that radical betrayal of adultery can sever this is because the adulterer decides that their spouse is no longer worthy, no longer deserves their loyalty and their love and their faithfulness. So to act on this profound betrayal, um, it betrays the essence of marriage, which is the pledge of exclusive, lifelong faithfulness and fidelity and love. That's why lust leads to adultery, and adultery leads to divorce. And then in verse 32, Jesus, why does, we have to ask the question, why does Jesus say, but I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery? Because Jesus is totally against divorce, and he is for marriage. Again, he believes marriage is a sacred, holy, inviolable union created by God to make a man and a woman one flesh. And because he believes this about marriage, he believes divorce is always contrary to God's created designs. But Jesus goes along with Moses to permit um, divorce for sexual immorality. He says, but anyone who married an, uh, um, an impermissibly divorced woman made that woman commit adultery. So what we can conclude here from this is that permissible divorce leads to permissible remarriages, but impermissible divorce entails no remarriage. Now, we can't parse out everything here, um, and this is, this is hard. And many in this room um, have been divorced. You might be remarried. You might be single. You might be married right now. This is hard. This is not easy Um, But part of why Jesus takes marriage so seriously here is because it's the way that he shows his covenant faithfulness to his people. Marriage is the illustration that God uses to describe his relationship with his people, with his church. Jesus is the bridegroom and we, the church, are his bride. The reason divorce is not part of his design for our lives is because it's not part of his design for his relationship with us. His people. Jesus doesn't divorce us for our unfaithfulness. He's faithful to us. So if our earthly marriages reflect Jesus' love for the church, part of why he hates divorce so much is because it doesn't reflect his love for the church. His covenant faithfulness is of immense importance to us and in this passage. It's a matter of life and death It's what the very redemption of the world depends on. So he's saying, as you reflect my love for you, don't belittle marriage. Don't overlook it. Don't think lightly of it. Don't discard it so easily. But please hear this. Please know this this morning. If you're divorced, if you've been remarried, if you're married, if you're married and struggling, if you're single, divorce and adultery, they're not the unforgivable sins. The source of healing in marriage and in our lives is the, is the grace of God poured out into our hearts. God is patient and faithful towards us despite our faithlessness towards him, despite our sin, despite our failures. 
And as we rest in him more and more, and we seek his face in worship and in community, and we live in union with him, we participate more and more in his character, and we become more and more like him as we do. And so as we do that, we grow in our patience. We grow in our forgiveness. We grow in our faithfulness. We grow in our ability to extend grace and mercy and love to those around us, even to our spouses, even to our friends and our neighbors and our children. These are tender, personal areas of our lives that Jesus wants to apply his grace and bring renewal and resurrection to. If this is something you're struggling with this morning, um, if you have questions, if you're hurting, if you want, if you want to know more, please talk to, to me. Please come talk to Brad this week. Um, we don't want you to wrestle alone in this um, because we love you. We're with you. We're for you. We want you to know the grace that Jesus has for you. And the other thing that you need to know this morning is that on the cross, Jesus paid for every one of your sins, big and small, and his grace is for you, and he rejoices to graciously forgive all of your sin. Jesus isn't saying these things this morning to drive you deeper into despair, to drive you away, to make you sit outside with your packet of shame. He wants you to turn to him, to repent, to follow him, because his ways lead to life. And we need to remember that what God forgives, he forgives fully, and he forgets. He throws it as far as the east is from the west. That's the promise that our scripture make to us. You know, we, he wants us to drink deeply from his fountain of mercy, and as we do, extend that mercy to those around us. You know, you and I, we, the church, we're not the perfect spouse for God. We're unfaithful. We're broken. We're wandering. We're dishonest. We're distrustful people. And yet, in Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, um, God tells us this. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. God's faithfulness to us. It's the basis for our being faithful in marriage. It inspires us, but more than that, it, our God gives us grace to forgive all of our sin and to make us new. So know this today. Christ has been faithful to you, and he, and he always will be faithful for you. You don't need to wonder this morning, what does God feel about me? Does God really love me? He loves you so much that he sent his son to die and to rise and to return for you. You don't need to stay outside with your backpack of shame. Come to him. Rest in him. Find forgiveness in life and wholeness of, in him. If we're going to begin to reflect this covenant faithfulness at all, we have to be in Jesus by his grace and through faith. And if you are in Christ this morning, you're married to him, and he will never forsake you. And it's only when we understand and we take in and we're overwhelmed by the beauty of his love for us that we're able to be covenantally faithful with each other. So no matter where you are this morning, married, single, divorced, remarried, know this, Jesus doesn't bring you contempt this morning. Rather, he brings you a love that will enable you to love in ways that you don't think are possible 
to forgive in ways that you can't imagine being possible because it's a love that brings resurrection with it everywhere that it goes. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your faithful love to us. We thank you that you have committed yourself to us, um, a wandering, broken, adulterous bride. We thank you that you come to us and you pursue us and you chase us down and you offer forgiveness and life and wholeness. So wherever we are this morning, Father, um, help us to not be beaten down by your word, but to see that it brings life, to see that the ways that we think are going to lead to life actually lead to death and separation from you. So help us to pursue you, to believe your word, to let your voice be louder in our heads um, than even our wants or our desires. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We ask that you would meet with us, that we would feast with you and celebrate as we look forward to celebrating you with you when you return at your wedding table. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.